Good morning, everybody. About this time last year, for those who are here, um, we looked at a series in Genesis. And um, we only covered the first 11 chapters. Uh, that was about 2,000 years worth. So that was um, quite, quite a uh, lightning tour of those first 2,000 years of human history. But what we're doing now is um, starting a new series. Uh, leading on from the first 11 chapters, uh, we now get into a bit more detail. It slows down a little bit. Um, and from chapter 12 on, uh, we look primarily at the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. So we're going to kick off uh, actually in chapter 11 today. But I want to um, briefly recap on two important um, thoughts from those first 11 chapters. I won't go over those 11 chapters in detail. And the first um, thought that I'd remind us of is just the person of Noah. So prior to the flood, about 1650 years or so after creation, uh, God looks down on the earth. He sees that it's increasingly wicked. Uh, He sees it's full of violence. He's grieved that he's made mankind. He actually plans to blot out the human race. But Noah found, finds favour in the eyes of God. This one man, we don't know if there was a single soul on the rest of the, the earth uh, that still maintained a relationship with God. But Noah did. Noah was a righteous man uh, and he did what God required of him. Uh, it's recorded that Noah was blameless among his generation uh, and a man who walked with God, a righteous man. So God sends the flood, uh, but in his mercy... Through this one man, Noah, uh, he preserves a remnant or a portion of the human race to be carried forward through the great flood uh, on the ark and to repopulate the earth. And then in those uh, 11 chapters, chapters 10 and 11, um, we see another um, account of relevance to today's message and that's uh, when we come to the Tower of Babel. Immediately after the flood, God commands Noah and his sons to multiply, to spread out and fill the earth. At the Tower of Babel, uh, Babel was a city in Nimrod's uh, kingdom. Nimrod, one of the first great kings, one of the first um, central human governments within the first few hundred years after the flood, uh, builds Babel, but Babel Babel becomes this centre point of opposition to God. We're not given all the detail, except that um, Nimrod is referred to someone who uh, was in the face of God or in opposition to God uh, and at Babel maybe they wanted to floodproof themselves um, they started building this tower to the heavens with the concept that maybe they can ascend and become greater than God himself and the concept was we don't want to be scattered we want to resist that and so we're going to congregate together on the plain of Shinar build this great tower make a name for ourselves uh, rather than follow God and so Before the flood, it was dark times. Noah um, found favour in the eyes of God and in those dark times there was a glimmer of light and God preserves uh, the human race through Noah and his sons. But uh, immediately after the flood in those first few hundred years we see that uh, paganism, idol worship uh, had already become very prolific, very prominent uh, among the peoples of the earth and Uh, we find that that was concentrated at Babel. Of course, God comes down, sees what's happening at Babel 
and confuses the languages uh, and scatters people in accordance with his original command across the face of the earth in their people groups, which chapter 10 records, um, which happens after chapter 11. Then finally we come to chapter 12, which of course is where Abraham um, is called by God. Before that, and we'll start in chapter 11 today, we have the genealogy of Shem through to Abram. So, starting this series in Genesis, I think there's two key perspectives. Um, we'll study, you know, between sort of chapter 12 and somewhere in the, in the low 30s. Those two key perspectives, we can always look at these passages from a human perspective. What was Abraham thinking and feeling? Watching uh, Jacob grow from a little um, deceiving little rat bag into this um, wise old man that worships on the, the top of his staff and blesses Pharaoh. So we can see their, their journey of faith, their journey with God and we maybe see some of their fears and failures, the mistakes they make. That's one perspective, the human perspective that we can come back to. But there's also God's perspective and it's great as we go through these chapters to think to yourself as we read these texts to think to yourself, how is God at work in these passages? What's God's big plan? How is he bringing it to pass? How is he leading, guiding and protecting these patriarchs to achieve a plan for himself? Um, And we'll see that as we go through. So I want to start by reading from chapter 11 of Genesis. And if you want to turn to that, it would be good so you can follow along. Genesis chapter 11, reading from verse 26. This is starting with Abram's father, Terah. After Terah had lived 70 years, he became the father of Abram, Nahor and Haran. This is the account of Terah's family line. Terah became the family of Abram, Nahor and Haran and Haran became the father of Lot. While his father Terah was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans in the land of his birth. Abram and Nahor both married. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was childless because she was not able to conceive. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abram, and together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Terah lived 205 years and he died in Haran. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran and they set out for the land of Canaan and they arrived there. Abram travelled through the land as far as the land, as far as the site of the great tree of Moreh at Shechem. 
At that time the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he went on towards the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Then Abram set out and continued towards the Negev. And we'll leave it there for now and and come back to that later. Uh, So by way of some background info, this is relevant to the whole series, of course, but um, particularly um, today as well. If we look at the genealogies, um, there's some remarkable things we learn from these and these are in chapter 11 of Genesis. But we see that, for example, Shem died after Abraham died. Um, so these great patriarchs, Noah was alive when Abram uh, was, was born. Um, but we also see uh, that their lifespan was decreasing over time and we're not given reasons why that was. Maybe uh, genetic concentration through exclusively intermarrying with their tribes, maybe nutrition changed, maybe the atmosphere and environment changed. Um, we're not given the reasons. But this is the um, background so of after the flood. We see that um, Shem, of course, was about 100 years old and then within two years after the flood, Arphaxad was born. Arphaxad um, will come in today's story because it was likely his grandson that founded Ur of the Chaldeans. This is uh, um, the primary stomping ground of Arphaxad and his descendants. Um, in that area of um, what's uh, southern Iraq these days. And then we have, of course, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And to think that Shem was alive alive, um, during the lifetime of Jacob makes you realise when Jacob complains and has a whinge at 147 years old, oh, my days have been few and haven't lived up to the days of my fathers. Well, of course they haven't. Shem's died in his lifetime and he's aware of these great... um, initial patriarchs and that's really to orientate our our, um, thoughts to the sort of time frame we're in if we look at now the family tree of Abram uh, each generation going down the three patriarchs Abraham, Isaac and Jacob they all tie back into um, Abram's family tree through Nahor and Haran of course Haran died seemingly prematurely while um, Terah was still alive and Terah lived maybe 180 I think um, but so you can see the, the intermarriage and that was their, the custom of their clan to exclusively intermarry um, which was why Esau's Hittite wives were one reason why they were um, detestable to his parents as well as their religion. Um, that gives us the overall picture of uh, the, the family tree structure. I think I've um, gone through Genesis several times over the last month And uh, as I've been reading it, it just continually strikes me how thoroughly removed it is from our culture. And so it's hard for us as, um, you know, modern Aussies to put ourselves back in those those shoes. But we'll try and do that through the series, try and um, understand the culture and its implication on on these people. But it's interesting to note that um, the idolatry associated with this branch of the family keeps creeping back in. You'll remember Rachel brings household gods 
back in with her um, when they flee with Jacob um, away from Laban. And of course, um, this is the map of the journey that Abraham took. You might think it um, looks like a bit of a deviation to go to Haran, um, but I don't think I'd want to walk my sheep through there either. Looks like they um, went up along the Euphrates River uh, and migrated up there. And we're not given the full detail. It says that Terah took them, um, but Abraham had the call while in um, Ur of the Chaldeans, which is down here. I've put some other ancient cities for reference, so Babylon and Nineveh, uh, capital of Assyria, uh, as well as Damascus, uh, the capital of Syria, um, ancient Syria. And so that sort of gives us a little bit of, um, I guess, geographic and family tree sort of background that we need as we come into this series on the, on the patriarchs. And... Before we jump into the text in a bit more detail, I just want to make a quick request of Chris. Chris, I want you to build me a Jewish synagogue. Is that okay? Um, probably asking the wrong person. <laughs> the, the other thing is that the synagogue is going to be in Iraq. Baghdad, actually. A prominent location, probably. Yep. Is that okay? Um, modern day? Yeah, modern day Iraq. You won't have any telecommunications and you won't be able to connect to your family back here and you'll have to leave them behind. But I'll make you into a great nation. (laughs) And I think think that's the sort of point, I I hadn't prepped Chris on that, but um, the, the point of this migration of Abraham is that it's terrifying in, in some aspects. I don't think we can get the full gravity of exactly what God had called him but we're talking a completely um, polytheistic culture. Uh, Abraham came from Ur of the Chaldeans. Uh, all his ancestors were moon worshippers. This is um, the great ziggurat of Ur. It was built in Abraham's day originally, um, but then rebuilt during the time of Daniel um, by Belshazzar's father, um, reconstructed and it's had minor touch-ups since, but this is um, largely from the 6th century BC. Uh, They built these ziggurats um, as temples of worship in the area of the Chaldeans. um, The moon moon worship was the the primary deity. They had up to 300 individual gods. There's been something like 100,000 clay tablets dug up in the area of Ur, very well established um, archaeologically. And no surprises, but... The second centre for moon worship um, in the area was Haran. And so we find that Abraham um, is called from, his name means exalted father, so it's likely he was a prince in Ur or some kind of um, part of the nobility or a person of significance. But he's called to leave behind Ur where all his clans are, all his family, all his military security. Ur may have even had Um, 250,000 people in it by this stage uh, when Abram was there Uh, and he's called to abandon his religion we're not told whether Abram himself um, was a moon worshipper his relatives have moon worship kind of names like um, Nahor and Haran's kids etc but Abram's called to essentially um, leave the security 
of Ur of the Chaldeans leave his religion, leave his family uh, and go to Canaan. Canaan was a little bit of a, a backwater. Um, it was composed mainly of city-states all doing their own thing, each with their own little king. Um, we see that later on in Genesis. But incredibly significant, this call of God onto Abraham. And it seems to me uh, Noah was a righteous man. Uh, he had died uh, and God, it looks to me that God is raising up a light of hope in Abram, calling him so that God's great plans of salvation uh, and his plans to not leave the world in darkness uh, could be brought to fruition. One comment as we go through this text and we read that um, Abraham, in verse 6, Abraham travelled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Moreh at Shechem. Um, I didn't include a, a picture in the slides but if you look up uh, some of these trees they actually think they're still there today 5,000 years old uh, and you might say why is this detail in the text um, mentioning these trees well firstly uh, trees were landmarks if you're roaming through a desert it's pretty handy to see a big tree in the distance and go we're nearly there um, they're also shade for um, agrarian people raising livestock etc and to set their camps up around but it also mentions uh, in verse 6 that the Canaanites are in the land and I take that to um, as a reference possibly to this at least to the the pagan practices of the Canaanites uh, and this great tree we know from elsewhere in the Old Testament that um, Baal was worshipped by the Canaanites and that, that worship was often associated with high places, so hills and mountains, uh, and also with spreading trees. So a lot of their um, rituals and, and pagan worship was centred around trees and high places. And I think it's almost certain that this tree that Abraham comes to is a local pagan um, worship centre or a sacred site. But here Abraham builds an altar to the Lord who's called him. And so emphasising his commitment He's left moon worship, he's come to a new land, he's not going to allow that pagan worship um, to be assimilated into his family. Rather, he builds an altar to the Lord, uh, essentially eclipsing the local uh, religion. So if we look for um, what are some of the significance about this call to Abraham, this this is a map of Canaan, so this is where Abraham comes down from Haran, um, originally builds his altar at Shechem, eventually comes to settle at Bethel and Ai with Lot. Just a bit of um, geography for our account. But it's not until we come to the New Testament that um, we hear more about the significance of what Abraham's doing here and his faith and, and what it was outworking in. And so we read this in Hebrews. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents while with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And so if we look at, say, back at the Tower of Babel, this was all about men making a name for themselves. Um, we, we want to build our renown, build our reputation, build our fame. Whereas Abraham says, God, I'm prepared to 
abandon my fame, abandon my reputation or my legacy and entrust it to you. I'm happy to live in tents. He might have had a great dwelling place in Ur but from then on he only lived in tents until he died. He never saw the promise come to pass but he believed um, God would do what he said and so uh, this passage in, in Hebrews tells us the significance that Abraham wasn't looking to name a city after himself, um, anchor himself down, but rather rely on God's promises. Nahor built a city, uh, Terah built a city. It was very common um, to build a city and build a name for yourselves, for yourself, but Abraham chose not to. So if we think of the application here from this, from this passage... I wonder where your security lies. I wonder where you're anchored uh, in terms of your perspective, your planning. Are you anchored in eternal security or are you anchored in the known, maybe wealth generation, maybe the familiarity of family roots? Because this passage challenges us to think eternally, to not grasp what we've got here and now but to actually think and plan with eternal things in mind. So your standard Aussie vision is to get as many um, investment properties as you can, build up a great retirement package so that you can retire, live comfortably, maybe even live luxuriously, travel a lot, enjoy yourself and when you're done with that you die. But this passage challenges us to live as strangers here, to think actually my real home and my ultimate destination is heaven. So I'm going to live in the context of that. I'm going to live like that's my reality. Even though I can't see it and I won't see it in my lifetime, I'm going to live like that's my reality. And so there's a real challenge there for us to, to put our anchor in the hope of Christ who will redeem us and take us to heaven and where we'll be rewarded for our service to him uh, and where we'll be able to worship him. But it's so tempting with all the stuff, with all the affluence, with all the prosperity to just think about the here and now, to be so caught up with possessions that our possessions actually possess us. Uh, Instead of us owning them, they own us. And I also wonder, it makes me think of our legacy, what legacy we're building with your children. What are you trying to, um, for those who have children, what are you trying to um, building them? Are you trying to train them and instruct them so that they can love and serve Jesus? Well, maybe we've allowed ourselves to be focused towards education, securing good jobs, securing uh, a good income stream for them and their family. The challenge is uh, to make sure that primarily the legacy we're building is around God's kingdom, not building our kingdom the legacy of 500 years. If Jesus hasn't come back yet, will our descendants be rich, affluent and indifferent or will they be people who love, serve and trust Jesus? And it doesn't mean you can't serve Jesus if you have a good education and if you have plenty of cash but it's all about focus and priority and motivation and what our real focus is on the legacy we're we're building and leaving behind.
If we turn back to the passage from chapter 11, chapter 12, verse 10, come to our next part of the text. It says, Now there was famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife. Then they will kill me but let you live. Say you are my sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake and my life will be spared because of you. When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that Sarai was a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh and she was taken into his palace. He treated Abram well for her sake and Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants and camels. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abram. What have you done to me, he said. Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her to be my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev with his wife and everything he had and Lot went with him. Abram had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold. From the Negev he went from place to place until he came to Bethel to the place between Bethel and Ai where his tent had been earlier and where he had first built an altar. There Abram called on the name of the Lord. And we'll go through the second section a bit quicker. Um, But here it seems that Abram didn't act in faith. He uh, is more motivated by fear, fear of starvation. Uh, And when when he gets to Egypt, fear for his life, fear for his well-being, his safety as opposed to trusting in God. God, you've called me to this land of Canaan. I believe you can provide for me here and I won't leave unless you tell me to. We see this as a bit of a recurring theme through the generations of Isaac and Jacob. Jacob, of course, before he goes to Egypt, makes sure he checks it out with God. He knows that it landed them in a pickle in the past and so he wants to seek God's guidance on it. But... Abraham, uh, we're not given the full story or not as much of the story as I might like, um, as much as God wanted to give us and we see that Abraham's motives appear uh, just to be worried about starvation so he hits Egypt, once he gets there he fears for his well-being and safety, he's not so worried about Sarai's it would appear, he's happy for her to um, go off to Pharaoh's harem with all that entails Um, although we're not given the time frames we don't know how long um, Abraham was in Egypt it's most likely that this wealth transfer that went to uh, Abram from Pharaoh is a bride price Um, I'm buying your sister as my wife so here's a whole bunch of um, wealth either as bride price or just um, custom of the day we see that with um, Isaac and uh, when he takes Rachel, uh, Rebecca as his wife that there's a wealth transfer there as well and so we see that Abraham's motives aren't from faith more from fear but that God still chooses to protect him both through the plagues um, inflicted on Pharaoh's house 
uh, and even blesses him, goes beyond protecting, even blesses him um, by giving him this wealth that he gets to take away with him when he leaves Egypt. Pharaoh's very powerful. Egypt was, um, wasn't, it did have city-states but it was far more united under the Pharaoh so it was quite a um, strong military force, certainly enough to snuff out Abraham if they had have wanted or were angry at Abraham's deception, Abram's deception. Um, but God is at work and that's where we see God's perspective in this passage. What is Abram's failure to have faith? What is Abraham's um, bad errors of judgement to um, deceive Pharaoh with his wife Sarah so that she gets taken um, is used by God to or turned around by God to protect Abram uh, from Pharaoh and also um, send him back to Canaan. Um, so it seems that God said off you, back you go, back to the promised land um, but blesses him with additional possessions. And then in the latter part of the passage when we got to um, verse 4 and verse 3 it seems that Abram when he comes back from Egypt realises his error, realises his failings he goes back to the place where he first built an altar and calls on the Lord again recommitting himself, um, repenting of his failings in going to Egypt and, and turning back to God in faith. And so the application here um, is to ask us whether we're allowing fear to drive us, to make, to make our decisions for us or whether we're make, letting faith make those decisions. There's lots of things to be afraid of. Um, the news never stops talking about the global financial crisis and the imminent meltdown of China and Australia's economy will collapse. We'll all be begging on the streets um, there's political instability, China declaring new military zones and everyone else flying through them in defiance. There's plenty to be concerned about. Uh, maybe Australia's moral state, uh, the fact that census on census, Australia has 4% less Christians than it did at the last census. We can be afraid of all these things but it's not the response that God wants from us. He wants a response of faith, one of asking God where do you want me? What do you want me doing? Uh, and not being afraid. We see that as soon as fear took over in Abram's decision making, he made poor choices one after the other. Um, but we're called to live in faith, um, to seek what it is that God would have us do and follow him accordingly. And the other thing, of course, is that when failures inevitably do come and we do fall off um, the straight and narrow path and we do um, sin, we do make mistakes, we make poor choices and then cop the consequences, do we return like Abram uh, with an attitude of recommitment, an attitude of repenting, opening, opening ourselves up to God again and saying, look, I've made bad lifestyle choices for the last four years but I know that returning to you um, in faith, I can again uh, walk with you and be recommitted. So are we prepared to eat humble pie, go back to God and say, 
I've stuffed up and God, I want to recommit to you in faith and live as you want me to. Of course, another great message here is that God is with us despite our failures. Um, Abraham was a long way from Ur of the Chaldeans when he was in Egypt. He was a long way from Canaan uh, and had very little ties or security in Egypt but God was there um, completely protecting him, blessing him, um, keeping his promises despite Abraham's failures. And then finally we come to uh, the latter part of chapter 13. We're just looking at chapters 12 and 13 today which is about Lot. So from verse 5 um, of chapter 13 we read, Now Lot who was moving about with Abram also had flocks and herds and tents but the land could not support them while they stayed together for their possessions were so great that they were not able to stay together. And quarrelling arose between Abram's herders and Lot's. The Canaanites and Perizzites were also living in the land at that time. So Abram said to Lot, let's not have any quarrelling between you and me or between your herders and mine for we are close relatives. Is not the whole land before you? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Lot looked around and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan towards Zoar was well watered, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out towards the east and the two men parted company. Abram lived in the land of Canaan while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. Now the people of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram after Lot had parted from him, Look around from where you are to the north and south to the east and west. All the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth so that if anyone could count the dust then your offspring can be counted. Go, walk through the length and breadth of the land for I am giving it to you. So Abram went to live near the great trees of Mamre at Hebron where he pitched his tents and there he built an altar to the Lord. Lot came with Abraham from Ur of the Chaldeans and then again um, when Abram left Haran. Um, Lot also journeyed with him. Lot came with him to Egypt. It seems like Lot was a tag along that refused to be parted from Abram. We know that his father had died. Um, Abram had been called to leave his household behind in his father's house. It seems like Lot was a bit of a sticker, a uh, bit of a hanger on. Um, but the New Testament tell us that, tells us that Lot was actually a righteous man. And so that influence of Abraham, of worshipping and trusting the true God, had rubbed off on Lot. And I suspect Lot actually was on board with the promise of Abraham to a degree. Um, he knew that God had called Abram and was willing to take the risk with him. And here, um, this seemingly, from a human perspective, just a simple matter of not enough grazing land, parts the two men and Lot goes on, um, of course, to live in Sodom. He moves closer and closer uh, to Sodom and then eventually lives in Sodom and only barely escapes with his life. His wife is turned into a pillar of salt um, when Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities of the plain are overthrown by the judgement of God, um, burning sulphur and fire from heaven. And I haven't fully understood what the significance of Lot is in this whole picture. He goes on to become, through his two daughters, um, getting pregnant by him. He produces the nations of Amnon and Moab. We read that later in Genesis. Those nations 
uh, have no significance in the promise. They're thorns in the side of Israel. Uh, and so I just wonder what went wrong with Lot, whether it was a greedy choice to go for the, the best land uh, and then the foolish choice of getting mixed up with Sodom uh, and the, the terrible immorality um, that was present there. I'm not really sure and uh, I think from this passage what I came away with is that God is completely sovereign um, over situations and circumstances. He's called Abram as his chosen um, patriarch to produce the great nation and eventually the Messiah, Jesus Christ. But here, Lot is separated out from that blessing. Um, incidentally, these are the only, it's the only place in the world where you'll find um, sulphur naturally recurring in 95 to 98% purity. Anywhere else in the world it's 40% purity but uh, there's strong archaeological evidence that this plain, which is uh, not quite so fertile anymore, um, is still evidence to us today of God's judgement against these people. But God is completely sovereign and we see just through these chapters and we'll continue to see it through the series. Uh, Again, when Esau is rejected from God's chosen people, uh, when Ishmael is rejected, um, some of Jacob's sons marry Canaanite women, so there's a bit of intermarriage. But God is sovereign over this whole picture and his promise of blessing all the nations through Abram will happen no matter what Abraham, Isaac and Jacob do to a degree because it's God's sovereign plan. So even though Abram goes to Egypt and could easily have been killed off, God protects him. Uh, Even though Jacob, um, at one stage when his sons attack Shechem uh, and all the surrounding peoples would naturally respond to that aggression by wiping him out, God puts a fear of Jacob and his family on the surrounding city-states so that they don't attack uh, Jacob. And we see this amazing truth of the sovereignty of God to bring his plans to pass despite human failings and I think it's a great um, truth for us that uh, we like Abraham are just imperfect people. Uh, Abraham potentially was just a a moon worshipper in Ur of the Chaldeans, one of many but God plucked him out, called him, said Abraham I want you to walk with me, I want you to be righteous, I want you to live according to my ways And ultimately through you, the Lord Jesus will come, uh, the Messiah, who will offer salvation to all people. But for us as people who who make mistakes, as people who struggle sometimes to walk faithfully with God, Abraham's a great example. He looks to God's promise. He doesn't see the full story, but he says, God, I'm going to follow what I believe, where I believe you're calling me. Garth says, I don't know what's next but I believe you're calling me and I'm going to follow it Um, and as Tracy mentioned earlier we as a community uh, are now saying God we don't see the full picture but by faith we want to be part of your work in the community of Montmorency in the community of Melbourne uh, and in turning the stats on Australia we want to be part of uh, revival we want to be part of spiritually vibrant community where we obey God where we support each other Um, We'll have a new pastor to do that with. Uh, But God is sovereign over all. His work at Montmorency is far beyond our small community. His work in Melbourne is far beyond our small community. But we can be a part of it if we respond to his call.
I'm just going to close in prayer now. Dear God, thanks so much for the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings. It's just so uh, foundational for us to understand um, both our our human origins, where we came from, uh, human history, but far more importantly, Lord, uh, your great plan for mankind, which is to offer salvation to a broken and sinful people. Lord, we praise you that you plucked Abram uh, out of his, his pagan roots and called him to yourself, revealed yourself to him as a true God and asked him to follow you. We praise you for Abram's obedience. We know it wasn't perfect. He maybe even didn't follow your call straight away and waited for Terah to die in Haran before he again headed off for Canaan. But we marvel at just how big a step it was for Abram to to leave his home and his security and put his security in you, Lord. And I pray for each one of us this morning we could have that same desire, that same willingness to trust you, to not look to our kingdom and be busy building our kingdom, but be busy building yours, Father. To not think about temporal earthly worries and concerns unnecessarily, or too much but to be focused on your ultimate plan for us in heaven Father and the great spiritual work that you are doing here on earth as you bring people to yourself as you mature people in Christ help us to be part of that work Lord and see the eternal picture help us to be able to say no to distractions our culture is thoroughly uh, off track in terms of its values, in terms of its priorities for how to spend a life. We pray that we might have your priorities for how to spend our lives and really think about the legacy we're leaving. We thank you uh, that we can come back to you, Lord, when we've uh, been failing, when we've made mistakes, when we've sinned, when we've we've been real fools and, and, and made some very poor choices, that we can still repent, return to you, Lord, and that you're gracious and will forgive us and cleanse us and restore us back into a close walk with you. And we thank you that you're sovereign, Lord, that despite, um, from a human perspective, Abram being pretty insignificant compared to some of the other great nations around, that you raised him up and that through him you brought to us the Lord Jesus Christ who died on a cross, was buried and rose again so that we can know salvation, Lord, so that we can know complete forgiveness from sin and that our consciences can be cleansed. God, your sovereign plans uh, are mysterious to us. They're hard for us to understand, but we pray that you would help us to trust you and the plans you have for us. Thank you for the testimonies we heard earlier in the service um, from various people demonstrating just how trustworthy you are and how, how you've guided Um, people in our congregation, I pray that you'll continue to guide us. And we ask this in the precious name of the Lord Jesus Christ and so that the community of Montmorency might know Jesus more through us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.